0: Well, again, want to say good morning to you. Welcome. Uh, thank you for making worship a part of your Sunday schedule today. And I want to encourage you now grab your Bibles and open them to, uh, or turn them on to, 1 Timothy chapter 6. Uh, but if you do not have a paper copy or an electronic copy of God's Word, right there in the pew in front of you, uh, there is a copy of it, and you can even look in your bulletin and tell you the exact page of where our text is going to come from this morning is. Uh, We just want to continue to walk through our stewardship series for this week, and then next week um, we will wrap it up. But this week, I I believe we've kind of been leading up to this point. And the, the series has been about more than money. It's more than time. It really is about our hearts. It's about who are we pursuing in life. And so this morning's message is entitled, Live Appropriately or, or Living Within Our Means. Uh, because there's a major crisis in our country right now. Now, a lot of people say that the crisis appears to be financial, but I would argue that it's actually a spiritual crisis. We as a country are drowning in debt. Uh, if you've been around the past couple of weeks, you've heard these numbers. But just in case you haven't, American, the average American family has $137,000 in debt right now. While only making on average $59,000 a year. When we talk about those who are graduating college, when they leave with their undergraduate degree, most are leaving with $39,400 in debt. Now, if they go on to pursue their master's or their doctorate degree, that triples, if not quadruples, in their debt. So they are spending the first 10 years of their life trying to pay off the last four or the last six. This is not sustainable nationally. It is not sustainable as families. I would even argue it is not sustainable for churches. You see, we have to examine everything through God's eyes and what He says, not what we want. I believe these numbers reveal who our God is nationally. And because of that, it also reveals why we have the stresses, strains, and struggles that we are within families, within communities, within churches, and even within our country. So the one big thing this morning, if we're going to live appropriately, if we're going to Get control of this and go God's way. The one big thing is this. We need to pursue godliness more than possessions. So let's look at it in God's word. First Timothy chapter 6. I'm going to start in verse 6. And if you can, would you stand as we honor the reading of God's word? First Timothy chapter 6 and verse 6 says, But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world and it's certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and raiment or clothing, let us be there with content. But they that will be rich fall into temptation and the snare and into many foolish and hurtful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil, which, while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Let us pray together. Father, we thank you for... Today, we thank you for the time of worship. We thank you for the reminder that we are to pursue you with all that we have and all that we are. And so, Lord, as we open and study your word, may your spirit be our teacher. May you give us ears to hear and hearts to receive the truth of your word. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. We need to pursue godliness more than Possessions. We're going to walk verse by verse and give us reasons why we need to live appropriately or to live within our means. The first one is exactly what you see there. We are to pursue godliness more than possessions. The word order of verse 6 is extremely important for us. Notice the Apostle Paul says, but godliness with contentment. This idea is Paul saying that we need to pursue Jesus more than we pursue anything and anyone else in our life. This echoes what Jesus said in Matthew 6. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. The idea of contentment in the Greek means this. It is a mind that is satisfied with its lot. In other words, our mind is satisfied with whatever we have, and we're not consumed by what we don't. And the only way that we can get there is to first and foremost pursue God and to view our resources the way God views them, as something to bring Him glory and to spread the gospel, not just bring about our happiness, See, verse 11 tells us what we ought to be pursuing. So he begins the word, that verse with but. All right, so verses 1 through 10 is talking about how a unbeliever lives. But then verse 11, he flips it and says, But thou, but you, O man of God, flee from these things. That's not just casually walk away. That is run as fast as you possibly can from those things. But flee these things and follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, and meekness. Then he opens verse 12 by saying, Fight the good fight of faith, lay hold on eternal life, whereinto thou art also called. Paul is saying, If you are going to be a man of God or a woman of God, you need to stop pursuing the things of this world and instead start pursuing Jesus Christ. That's what we're called to do. This is who we are to be. We are to fight that good fight of faith. We need to fight for a stronger faith, not more stuff. And the reality is, and he lays it out in later verses, is this, oftentimes the more stuff we have, the more complacent we become in our walk with God. We figure, well... I've got everything I need, and I've got God, so, you know, he'll take care of the rest of it. And so we don't pursue him the way we should. But Paul is saying that if we are going to have great gain, we have to pursue God first, and then we have to be content with whatever God gives us. We don't get caught up in the stress and the struggle of, well, this person has more than I do. But because we're pursuing Christ, we are satisfied with whatever he gives us. And go, you know what, Lord, this is what you want me to have. It's going to be okay. You have given me what I need. And so, as long as I pursue you, I'm fine. Okay, when, verse 6, is Paul really saying that there is someone who is better than money and stuff. There is someone who is more worthy to live for than stuff. And that person is Jesus. This is what our desire ought to be. I just want to know him and make him known. And anything that gets in my way of knowing God, anything that would keep me from making God known to my neighbor here and around the world, then I don't want it. This is the attitude that verse 6 is calling us to have. So really the first question we have to ask is this. Who am I going to live for? Am I going to live for me and my happiness or am I going to live for God? This is a question that I can't answer for you. You have to make that decision. But who will you live for? For. The second reason in our text that we need to live appropriately is, in verse 7, possessions are not eternal. You need to know that you are created by God and for God, Colossians 1.16 tells us. Ecclesiastes 3 says that God has placed eternity in our heart. In other words, every one of us is wired into our DNA to live for someone and something bigger than us. That we were not meant to to live for and pursue the things that are here today and gone tomorrow that we were created by an eternal god for an eternal god this is how you and i to to live in fact mankind is the only part of god's creation that is born aware of one day we will die every one of us in here is aware we're not going to be here forever Sometimes we feel like maybe we're a little bit closer to the end than we are the beginning. But we're born with this understanding that I'm not going to be here forever. So can I ask you something? If we know we're not going to live forever, then why should we give our heart and life and energy for stuff that's not going to last forever? Why should we live for something that could be gone just like that. Our family, uh, as I was growing up, how many of you remember the 85 flood here in Roanoke in the area, okay? Uh, two years after the 85 flood, uh, the house that I grew up in caught fire and was completely destroyed. All the childhood memories, all the things you know that we had, they were gone inside of about an hour. I mean, the, the fire department did everything they possibly could, but everything we had was gone. Now, were we were my parents able to rebuild and, and us start over? Yeah. But we still lost all of that stuff. Stuff that we could never get back, stuff that couldn't be replaced. My question is, are we living for that type of stuff? We look here in in verse 7, for we brought nothing into this world and it's certain we can carry nothing out. This would remind us of uh, Job. Job here in in the Old Testament, he uh, he had great faith in God, but he was tested. God gave Satan permission to take everything that Job had, including Job's kids, They all die in the course of of a day, and his possessions are gone inside of a a day. And where this would have left most of us to be very angry with God and go, well, God, this isn't fair, here's Job's response. Job 1, uh, verse 21 says, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now, how was Job able to bless God in the face of such adversity? Because he realized life was more than possessions and life was more than his children. doesn't mean that he didn't love his kids. Certainly, he would have mourned over the loss of his children. But Job said, there is something or someone who is more worthy of my life And more important than my stuff or my kids. And see, folks, if we're not pursuing Jesus, we're not going to get there. All right? If we're not making Jesus a pursuit of our life, then we're going to be on this constant emotional roller coaster. One day we're going to be up here because life is going good. The next day we're going to be down here because, well, life's not going so good. The key to contentment is being committed to the faith in Christ and knowing that God knows what he is doing in everything that he is doing. Solomon, the wisest man who lived. In fact, he had more possessions than any of us can even imagine. Towards the end of his life, this is the conclusion he comes to. Man shall take nothing of his labor which he may carry away in his hand. In other words, when you die, you're not taking a bit of it with you. So why live for it? Why make your life about the pursuit of stuff that in an instant is gonna be gone? This is a question that we have to wrestle with in our text. I want you to think back to Christmas. All right, parents, it could be this past Christmas or, or maybe a Christmas that you remember growing up. You know, you get to Christmas Eve, kids cannot sleep. They become insomniac. Because they're excited for the next day. Now, mom and dad, they're doing everything they can. They collapse into bed in the wee hours of the morning. And here comes Junior bounding into the room after you've only been asleep maybe 30 minutes. And like, it's Christmas. I'm like, no, I want to go to sleep. Like, the only Christmas present I want is just to sleep. But no, 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 Junior's got to get up because those presents are calling to him. And so everybody goes in, and I don't know how it is in your house, okay? But the only day I can get my children to sit perfectly still is Christmas morning when I say, sit in your spot, or we are not passing out these presents. They are still as statues. It's kind of why I want to put like a Christmas tree in church and even in their rooms. But that's another sermon for another Sunday. And so, man, you're handing them out and say, okay, go ahead, open that present, and they rip into it. Like, I'm not a good rapper. All right? My my Christmas presents look like a two year old wrapped them, and they destroy it in 10 seconds. And the reaction is always pretty much the same. Oh, thank you, thank you, thank you. Oh, we have always wanted this. This is so great. And they're all excited until you hand them the next one. And then they put that one there. Oh, thank you, thank you. Oh, this I mean, it, on and on and on, right? And you've got them like five, six, seven things. And what took you all year to save for And all night to wrap or put together took them less than 10 minutes to open it all. And out of all of it, they play with one toy. And my kids play with the boxes more than the toys. And in a couple of weeks or a month, that one toy that they played with on Christmas morning is in the pile with the other five or six It's lost, it's broken, or it's lost its interest. And this is how adults are treating stuff. We think, if I can just get this, if I can just get this promotion, if I can just get this title, if I can just get this raise, that then everything's going to be okay. But the reality is this, that the more we get, the more we want. It's a lot like drinking seawater. But we'll come back to that in a little bit. You see, living for stuff and people who live for stuff are never going to be satisfied for two reasons. Number one, it can be gone in a second. And number two, it'll never satisfy because we were created for eternity and all the stuff we have, it's temporary. Another reason that we need to live within our means is because God has promised to meet our needs. There in verse 8, and having food and raiment, that, that's food and clothing, let us be there with content, or having the basic necessities of life. Now, this verse takes us back to uh, Genesis chapter 28, and Jacob has a dream, and God promises to bless him and bring him into the land that he promised uh, his father and all of this, and Jacob says, you know, I I will be satisfied if you will just give me food and give me clothing. If you just meet my basic needs, I will be satisfied. So that's the kind of the background of this verse here. And the reality is that God has promised to meet our needs. That as you and I pursue him, he's going to take care of us. We see it in Matthew 6. He says, don't worry about food about shelter, about clothing. For your heavenly father knows that you need all these things. And then Philippians chapter four, verse 19 says, but my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. In other words, Paul's great summary statement in Philippians four is this. All we have or all that we need God has promised to provide in the person of Jesus Christ. So what is Paul saying is the only thing that we need? A relationship with Jesus. And God has promised to provide it. And I I would encourage you, if you think that, that God will lie, I want you to go find a promise that he's made that he hasn't fulfilled. It's a futile effort, by the way, because while man may let you down, God will not because he is a loving, gracious, merciful father who knows what we need and he has promised to provide it. He may not give us all we want, but he will provide all that we need. And when we work long hours and we do all of these things, this is what our life is saying. God, I can't trust you to take care of me. I can't trust you to take care of my family. I have to do all these things so that they will have what they need because God, I can't trust you. When we make our life about stuff, that's what we're saying. Next, we go into verse nine and we see the next reason that we should live within our means is because possessions create worry and stress. Stress. How many of you ever heard the old saying, don't judge a book by its cover? We're familiar with it. You know, I think we're seeing it played out in our society right now. Over the last month, there's been been several high-profile people who have taken their own life. People that on the outside, it appears, they got everything you could ever want. People that we often admire and that our kids look up to. And and what it revealed was this. They were lost and they were lonely. That while they thought they had everything, they were missing the one thing they really needed. They had fallen in the trap of materialism. And materialism is like drinking that seawater. See, seawater has a high concentration of salt. And so the more seawater you drink... The thirstier you become and if you keep drinking it you go numb you could go unconscious and ultimately it can kill you I can't think of a better picture of stuff than seawater because when I make my life about it I keep going and I get numb and and almost unconscious to what the real needs of my family and, and of my life are And if I keep going, it will kill me. It it will not only physically kill me, but it will certainly spiritually kill me because I will not have pursued God. I will have instead pursued stuff. And and we always have this idea that just a little bit more, kind of like John D. Rockefeller when a reporter asked him, how much money is enough? Just a little bit more. And it may not be money. You know, it honestly could be our time. I'm not going to ask you to rat yourself out here, but have you ever said something along the lines of, man, there there are not enough hours in the day to get done everything I need to do? Sure, we say it. Why? Because we have filled our lives and taken up time with stuff that doesn't matter. Why is it that parents are working 50 to 60 hours a week Why do they miss birthday parties and sporting events? Why is it that they skip vacations completely? Because we're trying to pay for the stuff that we don't need. Mom and dad, please hear this. And this is directed as much to me as it is you. What our children need is our time, our attention, and our affection. I promise Junior is going to turn out okay if he doesn't get the latest and greatest gadgets but he is going to be messed up or she is going to be messed up and have a warped view of life and people if we don't give them time, attention, and affection. When we make life about pursuing so that we can give them everything they want, they grow up with the belief that life revolves around me, that it's all about me. It's about my happiness and then they go into a marriage and they feel entitled and they think that their spouse exists solely for them and to make them happy and the once happy married couple who never fought and everything was good they end up in my office or a marriage counselors going I've got to divorce him or her because we just fell out of love they don't meet my needs Where did they learn that selfishness from mom and dad? That's a heavy burden, guys. Okay? I promise your children will not suffer if they don't have everything they want. But they need to see a mom and a dad who love God, who pursue Him, who love them, and who show them what it means to live for God. But this is one of the greatest struggles we have in the American church. Uh, Mr. Parr, a former neighbor to one of our members had a great saying. Uh, His saying was this, we have so much stuff that we can't enjoy any of it. Now, why can't we enjoy it? Because we got to work to pay it off. We're too busy trying to pay for it. Materialism has some very deadly fruits that come along with it. Fruits such as this, selfishness, cheating, fraud, robbery, jealousy, hatred, violence, murder, oppression of the poor, immorality, and injustice. Materialism literally is the breeding grounds for hundreds if not thousands of other sins. And they are killing you slowly, but surely. The final and most important reason that we need to live appropriately, live within our means, is found in verse 10. Because possessions will pull our heart away from God. Hear me on this. Having stuff isn't a problem. Having nice stuff is not a problem. Don't mishear that. Don't think, okay, well, I can't have anything nice or I'm not godly. That's not what this is about. See, possessions are amoral. They're neither good or bad. It's how you and I choose to use them that makes them good or bad. Do we view them as a gift from God to be used for his glory and to share the gospel? Or do we view everything we have as mine? Do I deserve it? Do I deserve more than you do because I work harder than you do? Ever played that game? the deadly game that we play. Now, look at verse 10. It doesn't say that money is the root of all evil. It says the love of money is the root of all evil. In other words, a longing for and an inappropriate obsession with or the constant pursuit of money. That's the sin. When I make my life about pursuing anything other than Jesus, I have an idol in my heart and in my life. It shows that we believe that we have to provide for ourselves rather than trusting God. Verse 10 is a caution for believers to be on guard against craving the latest and the greatest stuff. We go and we buy the new stuff when the old stuff was fine. Because we get convinced by advertisers, and man, they're great at what they do, all right? Marketing people are great at what they do. They create in us this need for whatever it is they're trying to sell. You ever watch one of those infomercials infomercials that said, the first 10 callers... In the next blank minutes, we'll get this. Have you ever noticed, like, that infomercial runs, like, five, six, seven days in a row? Like, if you haven't sold ten of your items in the last five days, I'm not really sure your product is as great as you think it is. But we have convinced our minds because we hear those things. Call now. This is as good as it will ever get now. And so we have to do it. It used to be, I'm going to pick on Apple for a minute because I've got the iPad. It used to be up under Steve Jobs. When an Apple iPhone, iPad, Mac came out, there were no glitches. Like it was worked out, it was good To go. It's not the case anymore. Why? Because they're trying to keep up with Samsung and LG. Same reason that it kept plaguing Microsoft and all of their stuff and having to send out patches. They wanted to keep people having the newest stuff. But they didn't take time to work all the bugs out. And what they didn't tell you was this. What you had just previously paid hundreds of dollars for, still works. Now, why did they do that? Are they inherently evil? No, they're not. They know if they can create a need in you and I, then we're going to pay for it. And we're not going to think twice about it. If we can feel like we're part of an exclusive club, and they've got us. And the result is this. When we have an unhealthy view of stuff, it pulls our hearts away from God. Because look at it again. Verse 10 says, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith. And pierce themselves through with many sorrows. This is a word picture that Paul paints of a guy who's sailing along in the sea. And he's got all of his stuff and everything's going great. Then all of a sudden a storm pops up in life as they are prone to do, right? So they're sailing along and this storm pops up. And then all of a sudden for all the stuff that he's got on his boat, he doesn't have anything that can save him. can't think of a better picture of the gospel than this. For all of our stuff, we have nothing that can save us. Because if we had anything that could save us, then Jesus would not have had to come to this earth and die on the cross. But the, the reality is that there's nothing that you and I have, and there's nothing that we can do that it will merit us being saved. That's why Ephesians 2 says, for by grace you are saved through faith. That you can preach a hundred sermons. That you can give all the money. You can do everything you want. But if you have not given your heart and your life to Jesus Christ, you are still lost, dead in your sin, and bound for an eternal hell. Stop thinking that stuff is going to commend you to God. This is one of the greatest trappings in American Christianity because we have bought the lie that money equals blessings. It's why 1 Timothy 6 and Matthew 6 rub us the wrong way. We think, well, this person has a lot, so God must be blessing them. But then we do the other side of it too, right? Like, oh, well, that person's struggling and they're drowning in debt and all this. Well, God must be mad at them. Like, we have, we have equated stuff with blessing. Here's my challenge to you. Find it in Scripture. It's not there. Now, is money a blessing? Absolutely. It's a blessing that God gives us. While we sing the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. But it is a call to remember it comes from God. We also have to understand that possessions can be a barrier to God. For us to have so much stuff that we believe the lie that God's blessing us, so I must be right with God. So I'll never see my sin. I'll never confess and repent of it. This is the trapping of stuff. Now, this isn't going to be up on the screen, but it is in your uh, outline here. I want to give some just really practical ways, very quickly. Have a budget. I'm not going to belabor this point. Have a budget, work the budget. I don't care if you're making a million dollars a week or you're making $10 a week. All right, A budget is a framework that you can use By praying, and God can orient how you ought to steward what you're giving. Have it and work it. Because if not, I promise you, you're going to spend more money in ways that you never thought about doing. Okay, the uh, next one I would say is this. Let's talk about our cars for a minute. All right, buy used car instead of a new car. For this reason. 2017, the average new car costs $33,500. Average, as a $479 per month payment. Whereas a a good used car, somewhere between 75 to 100,000 miles, good used car in 2017 costs $16,000. Less than half. Now, this isn't about saving that $16,000 so you can go out and buy more stuff for you. It's about going, the purpose of transportation is to get me from point A to point B and back, hopefully. Okay, to get me where I'm going to go. And so by doing that, guess what? Now I am freed up to be more generous to give to the gospel so it goes further. It's a conscious decision to say, My life is going to be about knowing God and making him known. So I'm going to cut anything out that keeps me from knowing God so that I can make sure others can hear about God. Let's talk about eating out versus eating at home. Now I'm getting real personal on Sunday afternoon, right? Last year alone, the average family spent $3,000 eating out. It translates into about $10 per person, whether you're e- eating at uh, McDonald's or if you are going to a sit-down restaurant. About $10 per person. Now, what, what, what's the translation of if I eat at home, if I know parents, like, I'm, your kids are going to hate me for this. My kids are going to hate me for this. What if you packed their lunch? What's the difference? $10 per person eating out? $6 to eat at home or to pack a lunch. That's a savings of 40% right off the top. That's 40%, by the way, that we can now shift into being generous because we have been blessed. We are going to bless others and share the gospel. What about? Entertainment. Oh, we love our movies and our ball games, right? $2,500 a year. The average family spends. Now, am I saying you can never eat out or you can never go to a movie or a ball game? No. Budget it. Make it the last item in your budget, though. Your giving back to God is first then your savings, and then what you need to live on. And the luxuries, which eating out and going entertainment is a luxury, not a necessity, that's last on my budget. When we do that, it reorients the way we think. And it allows us to go, how can I use what God has given me for the glory of God and the good of others? We need to realize how much we spend on these things because what we are saying by the way we're spending is this life is about me and my happiness not anything else and then we go to church and, and and we talk about how terrible it is that 75% of the people in North America don't have a relationship with Jesus We lament the fact that over 2 billion people worldwide have not even heard the name of Jesus or the gospel. And we go, oh, what can we do? But it never translates into how we live. This is where the problem is. We have been blessed so that we can be a blessing. If we're going to reach Franklin County and beyond for Christ one person at a time, it is going to require us to make difficult decisions to intentionally pursue Jesus with our time and our resources for the glory of God and for the good of others. So how can we apply this? Now this will be up on the screen for you. Two ways that we can immediately apply this text. First, make Jesus the pursuit of your life. Verse 19 of 1 Timothy 6 is important for us to understand. When when he says, lay up in store for themselves a good foundation against the time to come. uh, Reference to the day of judgment, by the way. That they may lay hold on eternal life. Literally what Paul is saying is heaven and hell are at stake at how we view our stuff. That a saved person will view it one way and a lost person will view it another way. So I would ask this question do you view it in a way that honors God or rejects God? Pursue godliness while being content with what God gives you. That's the great gain of our text. Then number two, find your satisfaction in your relationship with Jesus. When I am content with what God says about me, then what the world thinks about me, what others say about me, you know what, doesn't nearly matter as much. Because I know My greatest treasure is something that God has given me that this world can never take from me. And that's my salvation. And so my joy doesn't come in stuff. My identity isn't in the clothes I wear, the car I drive, the size of my bank account. My identity is that I was a sinner lost and destined for hell But God in his love sent Jesus to die on the cross for my sins that when I confessed that I was a sinner believing that Jesus died on the cross and that he is the only hope of salvation that God took this dead man in sin and he breathed life into him and now I am forever his. Make that your identity. Oh man, I I wish I could just get in front of younger kids for this reason to say girls don't let some snot nosed little boy define you by your beauty and boys don't let the other boys or other girls torment you and talk about you're not a real man if you don't have or do X, Y, and Z rather I would simply say this but you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and you're going to be okay don't let the world define you because they will. They will define you. You're white, you're black. They will f- define you. You're skinny, you're fluffy. They they don't hey <laughs> they, they will define you. You're a college educated person and, and you're just a you're a nobody. They will define you by the size of your paycheck or your title or your power within an organization. They will define you, but here's the thing. Jesus said, do not fear them who can not, who can kill the body, but not the soul. Rather, fear him who is able to destroy both the body and the soul. You want to stop playing the comparison game? Then stop living for what the world says and live in what God knows. When, when Jesus defines who I am, three things happen, then I'm done. Number one, I will live simply. I will see what I need, and then the rest of it I'm not going to pursue. I'm going to make those changes. Number two, I will live graciously. Because I have found so much joy in Jesus, I will want others to to experience it. Number three, I will live for eternity. If I'm living for Jesus, I'm going to share what God has given me, as it says in verse 18. I'm going to lay hold uh, and build a strong foundation according to verse 19, and I'm going to want everybody else around me to have that same joy. That's why we need to live within our means. Because people are dying every single day and going to hell, having never heard the gospel. I would ask this this simple question, we're going to pray. When is that thought going to become intolerable to us? Would you stand with me as we're going to pray? Our gracious, merciful, loving Heavenly Father, We come to you this morning Having been blessed and privileged To come into your house And to sing your praises And to worship you And to study your word We have been able to laugh Which is a good thing Because you are the author of joy I pray that Father We have even felt conviction Because that means That you are dealing with us Father, I just pray for every soul that is here today. Lord, you know whether they are your child or not, whether they have trusted you. The question of the hour is very simply, who will I live for? If they've never come to that place where they have accepted you, Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit has spoken clearly and in a compelling way to show them that living a life for anything other than you is worthless. And that because of that, they want to give their heart and their life to you. Father, we know that you will accept them just as they are right here, right now. That heart that cries out in faith to you. So Father, I pray this has also been a call for us as Christians and us as a church to evaluate how we spend our life and the things that you give us. I pray that we would be good stewards that would be about the gospel. So Father, we give this time of invitation to you. We pray that as your word has gone out, we know that it will not return void, but it will accomplish what you desire it to. And so, Father, we ask that you have your way in us. Help us to come and to worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.